right now, I'm in a museum. I'm not sure if museum is the right word, though, because instead of paintings on a wall or artifacts behind glass, what I'm looking at are real, living people. And they are looking back at me. All these people are embodiments of different parts of Black history. Like, there's a blacksmith rhythmically forging a tool from metal. I pause for a long time in front of a trembling woman on an auction block waiting to be sold. There's a baby in her arms. I turn a corner and I'm surrounded by a forest of green. And in front of me, hanging from a branch, is a noose. A noose is what brought me to this museum in the first place. Over the summer of 2019, one was found hanging in front of a residence hall on Stanford's campus. Soon after being reported, it was taken down by the police. And then, nothing. Until, finally, five days later, Stanford's president and provost addressed the incident with a three-paragraph-long blog post. This response was not good enough for many, especially for Black students and administrators. People wanted the university to take active steps to educate people about America's racist history and to protect Black students on campus. But what was unclear, at least to me, was how the university should do this. What is a university supposed to do after a noose is found on their campus? And I was also thinking, where do I fit into all of this? My family is from Nigeria, so none of my ancestry is connected to the history of lynching in America. But I grew up Black in America, so nooses terrify me because they're a symbol for someone's pure hatred of Black people in this country. And that includes me. So how was I supposed to engage with this history in the present day? What was I supposed to do to make things better? In true university fashion, Stanford formed a committee to try and answer these questions for themselves. I figured they would just host a lecture series and call it a day. But they didn't do that. Instead, they brought a living museum of Black American history called the Experience Sankofa Project to campus. And that's how I found myself in this museum. The word museum doesn't really do it justice. The Experience Sankofa Project is the only museum I've ever been to where I feel things physically as I walk through. As I pass the noose, my fingernails dig into the palms of my hand. When I'm in front of a man silently playing the piano, my heart slows as if I can hear the music he's playing. And I'm not the only one who has such strong reactions to the experience. I had that moment last night, actually, which was really deep. This is Venus Morris. She's the actor who embodied Harriet Tubman, and she told me a story of a woman who had an even more visceral reaction than me. Um, there was a young lady who was going through. Once she got past the 
auction block and she got to my area. Um, she didn't know I was over there, of course, because I'm laying and waiting for everybody to come. I remember this point in the museum. I heard something rustle, so I turned to see what it was, and right there in front of my face, there was a barrel of a gun. Then, a second later, I registered the face behind the gun, and it was Harriet. But when this woman saw the gun and then Harriet, she freaked out, and she turned around to try and go back the way she came. And I'm like, she needs to go through, period. Ain't no going back. It's not like this is like some, oh, let's go to the museum. No, this isn't that. This isn't that. This is a ritual. This is an experience. It's this transcendent quality that the Experience Sankofa Project has. That's what drew the Stanford Committee to invite them to campus. I'm Dorika Blackman. I am the Assistant Vice Provost and Executive Director of the Inclusion and Diversity Education Office at Stanford. She was the one who originally had the idea to bring the museum to Stanford. There's a spiritual energy to this work. You can feel the actor's commitment to it. The people in this exhibit pray together. They invoke the ancestors together. They sage themselves. This is not like a one-off kind of thing. Some of the people who have been doing this workshop have been doing it for 20 years. The Experience Sankofa Project was created by Mizan Alkebulan Abaka and Siswe Andrews Abaka, two artists and activists out of Oakland. When I talked to them, they harped on this point that it was a spiritual rather than intellectual experience. It was meant to transform not just to teach. Coming to, to Stanford was an opportunity to, to help. There's a, there's a call for institutional change. And so we knew it like, okay, institutions are made by people. Let's impact the people and help give them an experience that can help transform their lives so that when they're making these policies and practices, that that's infused by empathy and understanding and love and kindness and a real reflection about um, how we really want to support human beings being our best. It's one thing to learn about the history of Black people in a textbook. It's an entirely different thing to be transformed by that history. Walking through the whole exhibit took me maybe five, seven minutes, but it felt like hours. It wrenched my body and my mind, and then I came out. After coming out of the museum, all participants are led to a debrief room set up and facilitated by the Sankofa Project staff. There were two main questions written on the walls for us to consider. The first was, how do you feel? The second was, what are you going to do about it? I thought those were really good questions. So good that they were basically the exact same questions I asked people afterwards. I think um, being able to make eye contact and see um, the humans in the space and like connect with their humanity was extremely powerful and very different than any other experience I've had. People kept talking about the gravity and intimacy of having to look the actors in their eyes. There were at least 15 embodied actors in that space. That's over 30 eyes looking at you, forcing you to look back. Those eyes, they touch you in a way that a book can't. To Dorika, 
they are what make you experience Sankofa. People talked going through this exhibit about not being able to look people in the eyes. But great art humanizes those who have been depicted as less. That's what we wanted, is for people to say, oh, slavery is not an abstraction. Here is a human being. Look at him. Here, look at the resilience. You just walk around the corner from slavery and look at the science that's being created, the art, the literature that's being created. There is no distancing yourself from someone when you have to just stare at them in silence. You're forced to face them. You are human together. And you understand the other person a little bit better. Even the people on campus that seem the most distant. People like Stanford's provost, Persis Drell. To most students, she exists mainly in email headers and Stanford brochures. In fact, she was the co-author of the original blog post that was published days after the noose was found. I had never talked to her before, but after she went through the exhibit, I caught her. I have three godchildren from Rwanda, and they've been having such a hard time with their experience, and this is going to help me with my children. I think I need somebody to give me a hug. I'll take it from anybody. (laughs) Before, my provost was just this distant figurehead. But now, she was a person, close to tears, who was asking me for a hug. And I gave her one. That is the perfect ending to this story. I hug my provost, and she hugs me back. And we both recognize each other's humanity because of the spiritual experience we both had. And then she goes back to her office and finally understands racism. And then the next time something racist happens on campus, she knows exactly what to do. But something about ending it there made me very uneasy. But I couldn't put it into words. Then I talked to Jeanette Smith-Laws. I probably would not have hugged her. She's a Black administrator who's worked at Stanford for over 35 years. And the reason I would not have hugged her is because I would have wanted her to understand fully that that's how we feel every day. Every day we feel that way. And for a moment, I would have wanted her to hold on to that hurt Ms. Jeanette got right to the core of what I was feeling uneasy about, which was all the pain and hurt contained in the exhibit that didn't end in the exhibit. That history of racism can't just be extinguished with a hug. And she actually came back. I saw her. I shared with her the fact that I probably would not have hugged her and the reasons why. But... I don't think she fully understood what it was I was trying to explain to her. We will see. Remember the two questions that I went around asking everyone? How do you feel and what are you going to do next? People had no problem answering the first one. But the second question, what were they going to do next? Barely anyone answered that. The thing that Ms. Jeanette was wondering about Provost Drell was the same thing that I was wondering about everybody, most of all myself, which was, 
what are you actually going to do now that you've experienced the Sankofa project? How are you actually going to change things? Sankofa is a Ghanaian word for go back and get it. So taken literally, the Experience Sankofa project is a project in experiencing what it is like to go back through history and retrieve it. And to try and answer my questions, I thought it might be helpful to take a lesson from the Experience Sankofa project. Go back into the past and retrieve some lessons for the future. There was one event in the past that I became particularly fixated on because it had so many parallels to what was happening in the present. That event was Take Back the Mic. On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Four days later, in response, Stanford organized a panel discussion. This was before blog posts. The discussion was entitled... Stanford's response to white racism. All the panelists were white. It's the exact same setup as what happened at the very beginning of this story. So what comes next? In the 1968 version of this story, members of Stanford's Black Student Union halted the panel by crowding onto the stage. Frank Omowale Satterwhite, PhD candidate and BSU member, took the microphone from Stanford's provost and read out a list of 10 demands. He literally took back the mic. The demands he read included the university admitting more Black students, setting up ethnic community centers, and firing an administrator who was against race-based admissions. Fast forward 50 years, and nearly all of their demands have been implemented today. It's a moment I wanted to replicate. I wanted to take the mic from my provost, not just hug her and call it a day. So I reached out to the person who did the mic taking, Dr. Frank Omowale Satterwhite. When I got on the phone with him, I thought all he would want to talk about was take back the mic. But instead, he kept on bringing up the importance of the volunteer work that the BSU did in East Palo Alto, which is a city right next to Stanford that was, at the time, primarily Black. And when we came to the first BSU meeting, uh, during the student orientation period, then we were challenged to volunteer our services in East Palo Alto. And it was through that involvement in the community that Black Stanford students built an affinity and a connection to the East Palo Alto community. Dr. Satterwhite coordinated a tutoring program for high school students in East Palo Alto. I had imagined Dr. Satterwhite during this time as a leader who always knew exactly what he was doing, but he painted a very different picture. Looking back, it was an iterative process, not one where I kind of was conscious and said, this is what I need to do and did it. Uh, up until the, my mid to late 40s, I was primarily sitting at the feet or seeking out others, and uh, I was in a learning mode. Most of the 10 demands, even though they were drafted by Dr. Satterwhite, weren't originally his idea. One demand was his idea, the one about firing the administrator. 
but the rest were crowdsourced from previous demands that had already been made to the administration by other members of the BSU and from East Palo Alto community members. All the other demands came out of a collective dialogue that had actually happened over the course of the year. It was kind of like a perfect storm. In fact, while the story I heard was that the people who took the stage were all BSU students, in reality, a lot of those on stage were actually people who lived and worked in East Palo Alto. Dr. Satterwhite painted a different picture of Take Back the Mic than the one I had imagined. It was a story about a community rallying together. He stressed over and over that just being in community is one of the most important tools of activism. And today, Dr. Satterwhite practices what he preaches. Half a century after Take Back the Mic, he's still living and organizing in East Palo Alto. During all that time I spent talking to people about experiencing Kofa, I kept on coming back to this idea of community. Both because of being inside of the museum and looking into people's eyes, but also because of being outside of the museum afterwards. After the last showing of the museum, I was getting ready to head out when Mizan, the museum's creator, said, no, stay for a little. So I followed her back into the dressing room where all of the embodied actors were all talking and laughing, and then everyone started singing and dancing. They were family filled with laughter and joy and pure light. It is very easy for me to feel alone, especially when I'm living thousands of miles away from the family I grew up with as a Black woman on a campus where it can sometimes feel like nobody understands why it's scary that a noose was found hanging in a tree. But that night, I felt that if I spoke out, my pain would be taken up. If I shouted out my joy, it would become everyone's. I was part of a greater whole. At the very beginning of all this, I asked a question. What should I do? But I think that I was asking the wrong question. I wasn't thinking about we, about the ways that I'm connected to people, to communities all around me, and how being able to exist anywhere with people, that creates change. While I was putting together this story, Nizan emailed me to say that Sankofa was getting a permanent installation in Oakland. She asked how I was, she asked after the story, and I felt very loved, very much a part of something. And I told every single person I knew in the Bay Area about the new installation. I told them, you have to go experience this museum. 
I didn't make any change. At least, not any big change. But I managed to find my way into a community. I think that's a start.